You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Freeman, Matt at the Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to the, what day is it? It's October 5th. Welcome to the October 5th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three-time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. Uh, especially after that crazy race we had last weekend, that was, that was something. But uh, new round of the playoffs here, and uh, yeah, looking, looking forward to Dover. It's Traditionally, it's been one of my best tracks for DFS, so pretty excited this weekend. Okay, so we're going to talk about Dover first. Let's talk about last weekend's wild race at the Charlotte Roval. Uh, after that, 12 drivers remain alive in the playoffs. Denny Hamlin, Eric Jones, Austin Dillon, and Jimmy Johnson failed to make the second round. Uh, Nick, give us a rundown of last week's race uh, and then talk to us about the playoff standings heading into the weekend. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a crazy race. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of passing throughout the pack even during the race. Um, maybe, maybe not so much up front. Uh, Kyle Larson led a very large chunk of the race, and then there was some strategy going on. But uh, in the end, it was... Kyle Larson trying to save fuel and Brad Keselowski trying to save even more fuel because Brad Keselowski was on a little bit of a different strategy after he and Martin Truex Jr. got in an incident earlier in the race where they both spun out. Um, but uh, then a caution came out. So they you know, seemed like they would be able to save enough fuel under that caution to get to the end. And on that restart, everybody plowed into the turn one wall. They, they didn't make the turn and everybody just went straight into the wall. Keselowski, Larson, uh, Paul Menard, I think was in third at the time he, or fourth at the time he got caught up in it. Martin Truex Jr. was able to sneak by and uh, it was something like a 12 or a 15 car pileup on that restart late, at, late there in the late going. And kind of what we expected uh, would happen at the Roval, some mayhem at the end there. And then the restart after that uh, huge pileup Martin Truex Jr. was leading. Jimmy Johnson was trying to chase him down. And on the last corner of the last lap, Jimmy Johnson tried to get under Truex. He locked up his brakes, spun out. Truex looked like he was going to go cruise onto the finish with Jimmy Johnson spinning. But because there was like a right-left chicane, Johnson spun straight through the corner and you know backwards plowed into Martin Truex Jr. spinning Truex out, leaving both of them sitting on the track just you know yards from the finish line. Ryan Blaney swings by both of them, finishes first, wins the race. Jimmy Johnson, with that move, if he had stayed in second, he would have made the next round of the playoffs. If he won, he would have made the next round of the playoffs. But by spinning out, he went into an exact tie with Eric Almirola and Kyle Larson for the last spot in the next round. Uh, And Almirola and Larson held the tiebreaker over Jimmy Johnson with the best finish in the round. So by failing to pass Truex, uh, you know, maybe if he just stayed in line, he would have been in the next round. Crazy stuff. Jimmy Johnson ends up knocking himself out of the playoffs when all he had to do was sit there to make the next round. But I don't really blame him. He's not really a contender to win the championship this year. He hasn't won a race all year. It's been a long time. He's in the longest winless drought of his career. I think you got to go for the win. That's my opinion. I know it's probably the unpopular opinion, but, uh, I don't see him winning the championship this year. Take every chance you can get to win a NASCAR race, especially in the twilight of your career like Jimmy Johnson is. These wins don't come easy anymore. So 
you know, I, I applaud the move. Um, obviously, he wasn't trying to wreck Truex or anything like that. He was just trying to make a hard move to get the race win, ending up costing himself a spot in the next round of the playoffs. Okay. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what happened from the betting perspective? Um, because I know that we were kind of going back and forth, like thinking about what is the, the right way to model this and then what that might mean for different head-to-head prop bets that we would make. Um, what, what ended up happening with you? Yeah. So I ended up uh, placing three head-to-head bets and uh, posted them on Twitter before the race started. So uh, the first one, I really liked. I had Denny Hamlin uh, plus 180 versus AJ Allmendinger. Um, the model had them pretty close. Had, had Allmendinger maybe slightly ahead, but uh, overall they were pretty neck and neck in the model, pretty neck and neck in the, all the ranges of the, the sim scores. And Denny Hamlin was getting plus 180 versus Dinger. Dinger's had a lot of troubles. Uh, we know he's a road course specialist, but he's also had a lot of trouble finishing road course races and finishing them well. And for most of the race, Dinger was doing his usual Dinger things and having some issues and falling back in the field. And Denny Hamlin was racing if not near him, ahead of him. So that showed you for most of the race, they were either like equal or even Denny Hamlin was ahead. That plus 180 was a really, really good price we were getting on Hamlin. Unfortunately, with all the late race shenanigans, uh, it allowed A.J. Allmendinger to kind of catch up to Denny Hamlin in there and pass him at the end on, on these uh, late restarts and stuff. So that didn't work out. I also had Almarola uh, plus 165 versus Jamie McMurray. I think it was 160 or 165 in that neighborhood versus Jamie McMurray. Uh, again, just a situation where the model and the sim scores kind of agreed. Unfortunately for Almarola, he ran into problems not of his own doing. Uh, William Byron actually had a tire going down on as he was coming off of the, the infield portion onto the oval portion. He had a tire going down, and Almarola had to try to move to avoid it, clouded the outside wall. He was still able to continue, uh, but then he got caught up in that huge wreck in the end as well. He was never really near Jamie McMurray. Um, I think he probably could have gotten near Jamie McMurray had he not had all these issues. But uh, unfortunately, Almirola just had a very much of a struggle of a race. So definitely can chalk that one up as a loss. I know that the Hamlin one was a loss as well, but it kind of felt like a win when you're getting plus 180 there. And they were basically a coin flip uh, between between Almdinger and Hamlin there. And then... Finally, had Larson versus Jimmy Johnson. Larson dominated the whole race. I mean, he was the car to beat. He, you know, would have beat Jimmy Johnson had they all not plowed into the turn one wall there. Uh, And then, you know, it was just one of those things. And we were getting plus 120 for Larson over Jimmy Johnson. So another really good bet there. Unfortunately, lost all three, but I felt really good about two of them. And the third one never really got a chance to play out (laughs) because of Almirola's problems really early. Yeah, so uh, good process, maybe horrible outcome. Um, kind of thinking about this a little bit more, what is the um, what was the DNF rate for the Roval? Oh gosh, it was uh, it was extremely high. I, yeah. I don't actually have the the number, but yeah, like fifteen car pile up there at the end. You no, know, I think Larson finished like twenty fifth, and he passed a uh, this. Uh, this is another crazy story from the Roval, but um, Larson I think finished like twenty fifth, and he was one of the last cars to finish. And you know, there's a forty car race, so we're talking forty, almost forty percent DNF rate, something like that, uh, incident rate. And the other crazy thing is that <laughs> Larson needed that last position to make the playoffs if he Jeffrey Earnhardt basically stalled out 100 yards from the finish line and Larson was way back there just trying to finish his lap with a totally broken car from when he clouded the wall in that huge pileup um, he couldn't drive the car straight 
Larson uh, is, you know, maybe a, a quarter of a mile behind Jeffrey Earnhardt, and Earnhardt stops 100, feet, 100 yards from the finish line. Larson comes to that last chicane. He can't even control his car. He's going super, super slow, but he, he still can't control his car, and he hits the wall coming out of that last chicane going super slow just because he, he has no control of his car. He couldn't turn it left. Uh, and so um, he hits the wall, but the wall helps his car get straightened out, and he, like, you know, drives over the finish line like the slowest pass you'll ever see for uh, the next round of the playoffs. But <laughs> every point matters in this system, and we saw it in multiple ways, The you know, with uh, Jimmy Johnson losing it there, Larson getting it there, and even Eric Almirola repairing his damaged car as well to keep racing through multiple incidences. Every point matters, and I think we'll see it again in this second round of the playoffs. All right, let's, uh, let's talk about Dover. It is a one-mile, highly-banked, concrete oval nicknamed the Monster Mile. Uh, this is the second cup race of the year for the track. The first race was back in May. It was dominated and won by Kevin Harvick. Talk about the racing that we normally see at Dover and uh, what, if anything, the first race of the year means for this weekend's race. Yeah, so um, the first race at Dover was, was really interesting. Obviously, Kevin Harvick dominated. He led almost exactly half the laps, 201 out of the 400 laps. Uh, Brad Keselowski led almost a quarter of the race, 108 laps. And uh, those were the two major dominators. Uh, Harvick started second. So he started on the outside pole and um, went on to, you know, to, to dominate and win the race. So uh, Kyle Larson actually started on the pole, but he didn't even lead a single lap. And Kyle Larson has traditionally been pretty good at Dover. So I thought that was interesting. It just showed how far ahead Harvick was early in the season, especially over the Chevys. I know Larson had a good Chevy, but uh, he was unhappy. Larson, remember, this is something we'll talk about in the model. Larson was really unhappy with his car after final practice. So even though he sat on the pole and it's been very good here, obviously practice matters. And if you paid attention to his interview, you he, he would have found he wasn't super happy. And I think that's why, you know, Harvick was able to get him on the opening restart there and dominate most of the race. And ended up winning. Dover is a place you can pass. Absolutely. So um, usually at some tracks that are hard to pass at, we talk about quality pass percentage. Not going to talk about that at Dover this weekend. We'll talk about the model in a little bit, but uh, it is definitely a track you can pass multiple grooves. Um, they, you know, you'll see drivers riding a little higher. You'll see drivers riding the bottom. Uh, so it definitely can produce a lot of good racing, but I will say, but the fall race, which is, of course, this race, is very different from the spring race traditionally in how it plays out. There's traditionally a lot more wrecks in the first race than in the second race, and it shows in the, in the DNF rates. Um, so if we, if we look at the overall DNF rate um, of, of Dover, just going back to like 2014, it's about 20%. But then, I need to uh, break it down here, but if we... If we break it down into the fall race, the DNF rate and, uh, versus the spring race, the DNF rates are just so much different. So uh, let me pull that up here. One second. Have those numbers in front of me. I just need to get them. The, the fall DNF rate is around 28%. And uh, the spring DNF rate is around 10%. So just under 10%. So, and it's happened every single year. Uh, since 2014, since we started this format of the chase, or sorry, of the playoffs, still occasionally call it the chase, um, that every single year, the spring race, the first race, has had a higher DNF rate than the second race. 
the first race this year had a pretty low DNF rate for the, the fall Dover races. Um, I, or sorry, the spring Dover races. It was pretty low, but it still was at, um, it still was at around 15%. So if we get a little less than that, then, you know, we'll still be talking uh, down below 10% possibly. But it is true that uh, DNF rates very different from the, from the spring race to the fall race. Okay, so uh, let's continue talking about Dover. Uh, he said he's as he's looking for the outline here. Okay, um, with the fall and spring races uh, traditionally producing different DNF rates, uh, how do you account for that in your model? Yeah, so obviously, normally when we talk about the model, we'll say things like driver rating or or whatever. And and my model is finishing position with DNFs removed. So if we start modeling finishing position with DNFs removed. Uh, then overall, we're just looking at an average, like I said, 20% DNF rate. But that doesn't really tell the story because we know that the spring race and the fall race are so different for at least, you know, 2014, 15, 16, and 17, at least four years running, they've been different. We don't know about this year, of course, but we can say that that has very much been a trend in this very, uh, this era of the NASCAR playoff format. So, um, what, what will happen then is if I model finishing position, all the finishing positions will be modeled probably a little too high because I'm saying, well, there's a 20% DNF rate essentially for the model. But what I can do is I can add in a categorical factor for spring versus fall race. And when I add in that categorical factor, it basically creates two separate models. It's modeling the spring and it's modeling the fall, but it's, it's still using um, the, the main factors are, are still kind of the same for both of those races. They just have different influences on finishing position based off of the spring and the fall. Uh, so it still is important to, to model both the spring and the fall because that way you get more data, you get more, uh, more data around how much does something like driver rating or something like practice affect finishing position. And then you can use that uh, to essentially build two different models. It's not two different models. It's one model, but it, it's kind of like it's two different models. So uh, I have a categorical factor in the model this weekend for whether it's the spring race or the fall race. Okay. What other factors go into your model? Yeah. So this is a, like I said, we're not going to be talking about quality pass percentage. What we're going to be focused on this weekend is driver rating. Before we talk about driver rating though, obviously, uh, long run speed Dover is a one mile track. So we do get a lot of 10 lap average times in practice uh, for Dover. So we'll definitely be talking about 10 lap average uh, in the model. Starting position actually shows up in the model, um, especially for the, the, it has a much higher correlation with the second race than the first race. So it has much higher correlation with this race than the first race. Uh, and then also, as I mentioned, driver rating, we're going to look at year to date driver rating, uh, last half of the season driver rating and track driver ratings, not type, not steep track driver rating, but specifically Dover driver rating. So the three different driver ratings, the whole year, the half year, and then Dover itself driver rating. Okay. And then what is the model accuracy for Dover? Uh, it's actually pretty high, despite the fact that, you know, we do have a high incident rate, especially in the first race. The second race, of course, we have a very low incident rate. Model accuracy overall is very high. It's around 0.675. Um, so that's on the higher end. And especially for, you know, a, a non-traditional, uh, I wouldn't say non-traditional, but I'm saying not a mile and a half cookie cutter track. 
uh, it's very high. So the 0.675, very predictive model this weekend. Also, if we look at the error of the model, uh, the average error is about 5.8 finishing positions. So if a driver is projected, you know, to finish 15th, then uh, you can say 95% of the time you'll finish between 5th and 25th because uh, they're sorry, um, 5.8. So let's see, like, let's round it up to six. So 12 different from 15th. So anywhere from third to uh, you know 27th would be 95% of his finishes when he finishes the race. And obviously there's going to be some, and it's, it's obviously not like that because it's not a normal distribution. So it's not, that's not perfect. Uh, the finishes are usually be skewed much higher because of other cars falling out. So, uh, but, but the idea is like one error, one, one standard deviation on average will be around 5.8 finishing positions. So if a driver's fin finishing, like I said, 15th, one standard deviation will have them around nine to, to 21 and then two standard deviations around three to 27. Okay. Uh, for everyone who wants access to the model, who wants access to the uh, road of his live is going to be coming out to the, the article that Nick is going to be writing. Uh, you can get a special discount to a NASCAR pass for $30 through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, again, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. Uh, let's talk about GPP strategy. Uh, we have a model on the more predictable end uh, with what we expect to be a low DNF rate. So I assume that leads to a chalkier approach for this slate. Um, yeah, for, for the most part, I think it, it definitely leads to a bit more of a, you know, kind of a chalky approach. Um, certainly, you know, when we talked about something like Chicagoland, which was around 0.75 and a super low DNF rate, uh, that was definitely a chalky approach. The, the issue I have here with going too chalky with Dover is things do happen. And just because four years in a row, you know, the fall race has been calmer than the spring race, we still know at Dover that big ones can happen. Um, and that's because of the way Dover is shaped. Even the front stretch and the back stretch are, are pretty steeply banked around nine degrees of banking, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but that's essentially what you see in the trioval portion of most of the, the, you know, the uh, one and a half mile cookie cutter tracks. So what happens is if cars hit the wall, they end up sliding back down in front of the field uh, and that could create some big ones. So just because uh, we have a low, spring or sorry low fall dnf rate doesn't mean we should completely ignore the the fall dnf rate or sorry the spring dnf rate um you know it doesn't mean we should we should completely ignore the spring dnf rate so um i do think there is a probability we have some kind of big one so we shouldn't just say well we're gonna have an eight or ten or you know eleven percent dnf rate on average and that's what we can expect i do think we need to pull a little bit of uh knowledge from the, the spring race and say, well, maybe on average, it'll be higher than 10 or 11%. Just right now, the last four years, we've seen an average of around 10%. We've just avoided one of these big ones. But I certainly think the possibility for one of these Dover kind of big ones can, uh, can happen in this race as well. So I wouldn't go too chalky. It's also, you know, 0.675 is very good, um, but it's not 0.7 or 0.75 like we've seen at a few tracks. And I think there is the possibility we have a little bit more of an incident rate than you know, we've been seeing in this fall race in the past. Uh, I don't think it's huge probability. Obviously, we've got four years running where it's been it's been very different between the two, but I, I, it always exists. So I wouldn't go quite as chalky, um, but still a fairly chalky approach. I, I do think that's kind of the main GPP strategy this weekend for me, uh, especially around uh, trying to nail the dominators. Okay, and let's talk about those dominators. 
400 laps are scheduled. So it will be impossible to have a big GPP score if you do not have dominators in your lineup. Uh, what are the factors that are going into the dominator model for Dover? Yeah, so as far as the, the factors going into the dominator model at Dover, uh, we've got starting position, of course, matters, especially in the, uh, in the, in the second, sorry, yeah, this spring race, uh, this fall race. I, I, I can't do seasons, man. They're so confusing. Uh, in the fall race, uh, starting position very much matters. Year-to-date, fastest laps, uh, and then uh, also the track type fastest laps matter, and then past Dover laps led. So essentially year-to-date fastest laps, steep track fastest laps, and then past Dover dominance, including laps led and fastest laps is what's going to go into the model this weekend for dominators at Dover. And how many dominators do we typically see at Dover races? And does it vary? I'm assuming it might from spring to fall. Um, so the funny thing is that it actually, even though the the starting position matters a little bit more for, for the fall race, according to my model, the number of dominators is kind of variable to, uh, for each Dover race. So if we go back to 2014, let's just look at the spring races first, and then we'll look at the fall races. 2014, there was two dominators. 2015, there was three. 2016, there was like two major dominators and then three guys that also led between like 11.8 and 12.3% of the laps. So I don't know how you want to score that, but there was definitely at least two kind of major dominators. So we've got what we said, a two, a three, a two, ish with maybe even more uh and then then the first race uh in 2017 there was two and then the first race this year there was two and kind of a third if you include clint boyer who had exactly 10 percent of laps led 40 laps led and 26 fastest laps so two to three ish so if you look in the you know in the first race it's basically been twos and threes with a little bit of spillover maybe even towards a little bit more if you look at the second race um, we've got a three, we've got a one, and that was when Kevin Harvick led 89% of the laps in 2015. So we got a three and a one already. You can see the difference, uh, for 14 and 15. Then we have a three. Then we have, a kind of a, a two with a one another one of these situations is a two with some spillover for three other dominators. Uh, we had one driver lead 51 laps, another lead 39, another lead 30, and they all put up at least 27 fastest laps as well. So that was like a a two plus. And uh, yeah, then we haven't had this race this year. So they similar trends other than that kind of that one that stands out with Kevin Harvick. Um, we do see mostly twos and threes all across the board at Dover. So I'll be playing two and three dominator lineups for the most part. If there's a one dominator race, uh, you'll probably still be picking drivers that could have dominator potential. They might rack up some fastest laps, get a small amount of place differential, finish high, and they could still end up in the winning lineup. So I think I'll be playing almost purely two and three dominator lineups this weekend. So as we record this, we're currently in a rain delay for qualifying. So instead of giving some early dominator uh, cash and GPP picks, uh, let's talk about some of the drivers that right now fit the model stats that you have, uh, the guys who look good right now relative to their price. Yeah, so um, obviously just right off the bat, we want to talk about which drivers do we think will be the, you know, the cream of the crop as far as dominators. Uh, obviously, week in and week out, we've got the same three highest priced drivers. This week, it's Harvick at 12.1, Kyle Busch at 11.8, Truex at 11.5. If we look at driver rating since 2014, 
14 at Dover, which is kind of this playoff era uh, of this structure. Um, Martin Truex Jr. has the highest driver rating at Dover. Then just behind him is Kevin Harvick. But they flip in terms of dominators. Harvick one, Truex two in terms of dominance. Kyle Busch, not really a Dover dominator. Uh, only 5.5% of laps led and 7% fastest laps at Dover since 2014. So Kyle Busch up there at 11.8, probably the one I would avoid of this trio if you were going to, you know, early weekend dominator picks here. Another driver that definitely stands out is Jimmy Johnson, 104.5 driver rating. That puts him fifth. Uh, so, you know, Jimmy Johnson, very good at this track, 104.5 driver rating. Um, and he has had a little bit of dominance here. Obviously, he's won many times at Dover as well in the past. A lot of those victories, a lot, a lot uh, you know, many years ago. If we just look at the past three years, which is a little more recent, Jimmy Johnson's still right up there, 104.4 driver rating. He's priced down there uh, at 8200 this weekend. So I really love that price on Jimmy Johnson. Another driver that stands out just really awesome in price point is Daniel Suarez. Daniel Suarez, 96.9 driver rating at Dover. Uh, and if you look at just the last three years, which is, of course, the lower downforce era of this car, also you know, similar playoff structure to, to this year, these, those past two years, um, Daniel Suarez comes in at the eighth best driver rating at Dover, ahead of guys like Brad Keselowski, Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, Eric Jones, Kurt Busch. So Daniel Suarez really good at this track. He also has a win at Dover in the Xfinity series. So it's not like it's just been a small three race sample size in the cup series. He's done very well in the Xfinity series at this track as well. Priced even cheaper than Jimmy Johnson at $8,000. And then we really need to dig down further in price to find a supreme value. And that's Matt Kenseth. Matt Kenseth, 107.6 driver rating at Dover. Obviously most of that came in, in the, all of it essentially came in the Gibbs racing equipment he didn't race the first Dover race this year that was before uh they put Trevor Bain in the car or you know replaced him replaced Trevor Bain with him in the car so uh but that 107.6 driver rating is from his time at Joe Gibbs but it's still one of his best tracks uh and so Matt Kenseth uh is definitely a driver priced down at $7,100 I'd keep an eye on this weekend especially if he looks good in practice uh it would it would definitely be a steal to have Matt Kenseth uh, at $7,100. There is a ton of value this weekend in that mid-price range. Um, and as we're right now, as we're recording this, qualifying has uh, officially been rained out. We just got word. So uh, lineup will be set by owner points, putting Kyle Busch on the pole, kind of like fading Kyle Busch a little bit. Um, but uh, we'll have to see how practice shakes out and things like that. But uh, with Kyle Busch in the pole and never really having been a Dover dominator, I do kind of like fading him a little bit. Um, but that's early in the week. We still haven't seen practice times or anything like that for post-qualifying. Uh, so Kyle Busch officially on the pole for this race at Dover. But, yeah, going back to the drivers that kind of fit the bill, uh, a lot of value in that mid-range, that $7,100 to $8,200 range. You can fit a few of those drivers in, get some dominators, uh, you definitely can you, you put up a huge, huge score this weekend. If, uh, you know, obviously Matt Kenseth is going to be way back there in the starting order because of the qualifying rainout. Daniel Suarez will be way back there in the order. Jimmy Johnson will at least be far enough back as well. All of these guys will be playable. We'll have to see how they practice with a kind of a chalky track. I don't mind going pretty heavy on these drivers. Yeah, so it, it kind of sounds like um... – Obviously, we have to wait to see what happens in practice, but that uh, maybe a cash game lineup kind of makes itself a little bit based on how things have shaken out with qualifying. 
Yeah, I, I definitely. I think uh, a cash game lineup sit, uh, sorry, it really does stand out well. So, um, you know, we don't, I don't have the, the starting order here. NASCAR.com hasn't posted it yet. Right. Um, but uh, so I don't actually have the owner point standings in front of me, but we know Matt Kenseth will be pretty far back there because he and Trevor Bain haven't, haven't done a whole lot with that car. It was probably somewhere in the mid twenties. We know, uh, you know, Daniel Suarez will be maybe in that 18 to 21 range. I don't, I don't know the exact owner points, but both of those very playable. Jimmy Johnson, probably playable. Um, you know, it seems a little further forward. And then obviously you're going to pick a dominator. And then, you know, if we kind of dig down into maybe a bit of a, of the cheaper range as well, you know, in this, this five to, to lower six K range, um, you know, there's some other names that I guess kind of stand out. Um, William Byron did have a 72.5 driver rating. Uh, Ricky Stenhouse gen- generally good at the steep tracks. Um, unfortunately, Casey Kane still not back uh, from his dehydration issues. So Regan Smith will be in that car. Um, but I would have really liked Casey Kane. And then um, I think also Chris Busher, if you just look at his time uh, in the, in the um, JTG Doherty equipment and remove DNFs, he's, he's pretty decent. Um, so, you know, there is some value down there and we'll just kind of have to see where the point standing shake out. But uh, I think a cash game lineup approach, you know, we've talked about when this happens, a cash game approach can make a lot of sense, even in GPPs as well. Uh, Chicagoland, that race that I won the, the GPP, I five X the winning GPP lineup for a really nice day. I could see myself doing something like that again, where I enter 30 lineups five times each, if I were to, you know, max enter something like that. Okay. Uh, which drivers uh, right now, uh, based on, I guess we have qualifying information now, but not really, but which drivers before we get practice data uh, seem to be the ones that you will want to avoid based on the model data? Yeah. One of the drivers I'm, I'm looking at avoiding is Ryan Blaney. Only a 78 driver rating here. Um, they did price him down at 8,500, I guess, probably because of his track history. But you know, when you compare an $8,500 Ryan Blaney to a $8,200 Jimmy Johnson or an $8,000 Daniel Suarez, it's just a no-brainer when you've got two drivers who have consistently, be, consistently been so much better than Ryan Blaney. Um, so really not looking to go crazy on Ryan Blaney. Another one that kind of jumps out to me uh, as, as maybe a driver who um, is a little too high priced as Joey Logano. He's priced at 8,900. Also pretty low driver rate, not as bad as Blaney's, but at 87.6, that puts him below, you know, Kurt Busch, Danny Hamlin, Daniel Suarez, et cetera. So um, Chase Elliott, Matt Kenseth, you know, his teammate Keselowski, a lot of drivers have a much better driver rating than Joey Logano. I think he's fairly priced, I guess, you know, because he is ahead of a lot of the other drivers, but uh, you know, I, I think he's, he's probably not a driver you're going to see dominate. He's probably not a driver you're going to see put up a strong finish uh, and contending for fastest laps and things like that. One driver that I think is, is kind of interesting that's put up some fastest laps uh, is Alex Bowman. I, I didn't mention him, but he does have 7% fastest laps at this track as well, and he is priced at 7300 so kind of like him there. Uh, another driver that I think doesn't fit the bill, uh, Eric Almarola. I know it's kind of hard to judge him based off the fact that he was at you know an inferior team for the last several years, but it's still really low driver rating, 686 and then also Paul Menard at, at 58.6. The difference is, of course, Almarola priced $600 more than Menard. But both of them, I think, are a little overpriced for their respective histories at this track. Um, just not great driver ratings, 68.6 and 
uh, especially Menard, that average finish of 23.2 with DNFs removed. I think it's super tough to play Paul Menard, uh, even though, you know, he is only $7,700. I still think it's pretty steep 7700 I'd like to see him in the lower seven or upper six range this weekend to feel better about playing him so you know at the top of the board there's not a lot of really bad plays um obviously we've got our big three and uh they've all got <laughs> really strong resumes here at Dover um you know even Kyle Busch has dominated a race at Dover recently so uh it's not like you can completely rule out Kyle Busch just if you go over the longer run since 2014 uh it hasn't been Kyle Busch but if you go from 2016 to 2018 in this lower downforce era, Kyle Busch, a little bit better, but, but still I prefer Truex and Harvick. So it's tough to fade anyone at the top, um, but uh, I think there's some easier fades, like I mentioned, with Almarola and Menard uh, further down. Okay, uh, finally, talk to us about the content schedule for this week. Uh, Road of is live, when your breakdown is going to be published, all that. Yeah, um, so practice is, of course, going to be tomorrow. So there will be two post-qualifying practice sessions, and obviously we didn't get qualifying. So two practice sessions tomorrow. The final practice will end at 2.20 p.m. Eastern time. So it's rounded to 2.30. That'll be like 11.30 Pacific time for me. I'll get right to work. Everything should be posted within an hour and a half, two hours. Um, and then I'm going to jump right into Road of His Live after I finish all that work. Uh, try to do it a little different this weekend jump right into Road of His Live and uh, have it posted almost, you know, a full 24 hours before lineups actually lock. It won't be quite 24 hours, but probably be like 20, 18 to 20 hours before lineups lock. Um, do it a little different. See if you guys like that a little bit better. Uh, and then when the lines end up coming out, I'll try to get a betting article out there as well. And so we'll have everything wrapped up on Saturday. Uh, that'll leave Sunday morning for me to kind of you know, peruse Twitter and, and watch for any last minute news. Um, you know, there shouldn't be any weather concerns the rest of the weekend it should be fine Saturday and Sunday, but you know, if any drivers go to the rear or anything like that, I'll be able to answer questions on Twitter. Uh, so yeah, I'll be around Sunday during the day as well. Um, and, and I think that'll be kind of a fun schedule. So that's my schedule for the weekend, but, uh, yeah, road of his live, make sure you get your questions in early. Uh, as soon as you, you know, final practice is over, be thinking about getting those questions in because, Within probably two, two and a half hours, I'll start recording Road of His Live from the end of final practice. All right, that's going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Kiffin on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Road of His Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Road of His Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS.